Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, lovely to see you here with us, and particularly those who might be here for the first time. Uh, you will have seen in your uh, Rivers News that Josh was to speak today. Uh, yesterday evening, he contacted me and said that he was unable. So uh, you have to put up with me for a little bit and a, a bit of nighttime preparation. So I'm going to pray because uh, I need God's help today. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in you today. And when we hear psalms like Psalm 19, and when we sing those truths that the heavens declare the glory of God, when we are taken up with you, dear God, and taken up with your magnificence and who you are, we realize how small we are. And as we come to this time, dear God, we need your help to hear your word. We need your help to be transformed. We need your help so that we might become more like Christ. And I pray that same prayer that David prayed. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my strength and redeemer. Amen. So Josh was... Uh, is commencing, Josh is commencing, a three-week series on James to today, uh, and I'm just the cardboard cutout that doesn't look like Josh. Uh, and so we're hoping that he will continue to, uh, to proceed next week and the week after. When we think about suffering that happens to us apart from God's rescue plan, and I think that's what we often think of suffering as. James 1 helps us to see that it's part of God's redemption. James 1 helps us to see that it's part of, it's part of God's journey for us. James 1 helps us to see that he's at work within us and through us and alongside of us as we walk through the tough times of life. The pressure that we experience from various trials actually produces in us the character of Christ. That we grow into Christ-likeness as we walk through tough times in life. I wish I could learn my lessons a lot easier than I do, but I know that I'm just about, if you can compare me with a computer, there's one of them that you have to punch the information in more than once, and it's not the computer. It's me. And I need to learn lessons sometimes over and over again. Through then, if we're to go through the trials, then he encourages us to learn the joyful trust. The joyful trust that he is working in us and through us to, to bring that which he wants to do in us and bring his glory in us. In 1967... It worked. Johnny Erickson Tata, many of you will know who she is, jumped into Chesapeake Bay. Having misjudged the depth of the water, she emerged forever changed. She would, she would from this point forward be a quadriplegic, living her entire life in a wheelchair. Tata 
was, uh, written ex has written extensively about her experiences. She has sung songs. You may have heard her uh, over the years. She has been an inspiration to many people. She uh, is a picture of our text in James 1. She models the joy in the midst of her suffering. She shows that God has a good purpose in our suffering. On one occasion, uh, Johnny discussed uh, having her wheelchair in heaven, and she said this, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if it were, uh, if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see the wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair has given me a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. The harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, I, I always say jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> Where does that sort of joy come from? You and I know when we walk through the suffering times of our lives and the trials, when we walk through the struggles, and each of us walk through that because if we're all honest, we're all broken. We're all broken by life. How do we walk into the midst of joy? Ultimately, we can know the answer to that question is that such joy can only come from God. Such joy can only come from the throne room of God and from his presence and from his enabling and from his empowering. And he has really been challenging me to say, to lift the expectation of seeing the power of God exhibited in our midst. And last night when Josh texted and said, I can't preach tomorrow, I went, oh Lord, what am I going to do now? And so I thought, he's starting in James, I'll start in James. And so about seven o'clock last night, I commenced. And I said, God, what am I going to do? And I heard him say in my spirit, you have been saying you want to see the power of God. Now put your head into it and get on with it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I, kn I know that I know that I know that the joy in my trials, the empowering of God, only comes from him. James 1, 1 to 4, helps us answer, get answers to this question and become more specific. These answers help us endure the trials. These answers help us to push through. These answers help us to be, become better equipped in the midst of the deserts of our lives. In the immensity of God, when he knows all things, when he knows everything that there is, including all of the planets and all of the stars, and I was with a, a fellow pastor, a pastor friend of mine, uh, on a pastor's retreat, and he brought his telescope, and they're about a th not even a thumbnail 
thing up in the sky was like this little cluster of stars. And he said, do you know how many stars they estimate are in that little cluster? And I said, how many? 31 million. God stands outside of the universe. He flung the stars into space. This God who is this one who is far greater than we can ever imagine or expect, this one who is far greater than our minds can comprehend. He is fully aware of and knows us each intimately. For he doesn't stay outside of the universe, he transcends the universe and he comes into your heart and he knows you every fibre of your being. For in Luke 12... Seven, this is one for Mike Vosper. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. There's not many there to number. It was a quick count. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You think that he is this immense God who, who throws all of these billions of stars into space and arranges them knows every hair upon my head, and I am even worth more than some sparrows. Maybe that's not so hard for a few heads that I'm looking at to count those hairs. <laughs> but God is so connected to his creation, us, that he knows everything about us. Isn't that scary, yet awe-inspiring? Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Even before the foundation of the earth, God knew me, God knew you. And May I quickly welcome two brand new people who have come into church for the very first time ever in their lives that's Elijah and Abigail, who are up the back, our twin grandchildren. Even, <laughs> even before Abigail and Elijah appeared on this earth nearly eight weeks ago, God has known them, known them since eternity past. Even for you, God has known you from eternity past. He's known each of us before we're in our mother's womb. I want you to think about not just we today, and so often when we, when we uh, hear a preacher and when we talk about things in church, it's addressed to we, but I just want you to concentrate on you this morning, just this minute. He knows, think about you, he knows how many hairs are upon your head, and that's metaphorical, there's every... He knows every single fibre of your being. He knows all the days he has for you. He knows when you arrive and when you depart. He puts you together and your days together with you in mind so that you would walk in the fullness of joy so that you could walk in the fullness of his presence, so that you could walk knowing him. He's put together you and, and your days so that you would live 
in his glory in your life. And that his glory would shine through your life. If you take some time to think about that. I remember when I was at agricultural college a long time ago and I received Christ while I was there. Even though I was brought up in a family, in a Christian home, I received Christ when I was there. And we would walk some nights from the college down to the, the, the railway siding, which was about a couple of miles down the road. And because it was a very busy tra railway track, we'd lie down on the sleepers, put one head on one rail and the legs over the other rail, and we'd just look up at the sky. And I remember one night being there and being captivated by the stars in the sky. And thinking about how great God is and yet how much he loves me. Take time to think about that for yourself. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's not get hoodwinked that when we go through a tough time in life or a struggle that God hates us. For he doesn't. Let's not get uh, hoodwinked that when we go through a struggle or a tough time in life that we are just miserable creatures sitting under the hand of a vindictive, uh, dictatorial God who just wants to belt us every time we might want to be joyful. No. For he is that God in his presence is the fullness of joy. And he invites us into that presence. And we know in John 10.10 10, that the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus came that they may have life, that you may have life and you may have it in all of its abundance. You may have it abundantly. God wants us to lead us into the deepest life possible. He wants to make sure... And he is fully intent on walking with us on that path and to bring us into those deepest depths. Into that deepest presence. Into that deepest relationship. So that we can be captivated by his gloriousness. How does he lead us into these depths? To the fullest possible life? Two ways. He reveals to us who he is. He shows us that he is the God who is love. He shows to us that he is the God of salvation. He shows to us that he is the God of fullness, that he is the God who wants to rescue us, that he is the God who is so concerned with us that he knows every hair upon our heads, and he is the God who wants to invite us into that presence where there's fullness of joy even in the midst of struggle, even when we feel fragile. And I felt fragile when I woke up this morning, thinking, can't I stay here? It is he, this God and God alone, who will lead us into the greatest fulfilment of life. Money won't, possessions won't, things won't, people won't, our, our, even our married partner won't, our children won't, it's God who leads us into the deepest fulfillment of life. 
So that we can get a hold of his magnificence and his glory as we get a hold of who he is, this one who has made the universe and even made me and you in every fibre of who we are. So that we will be transfixed by him and we will jump into his life wholeheartedly and be transformed by him to be forgiven for our sin to be cleansed and rescued. When we think of obedience we th- and we think of God, we think of the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, don't we? When God gives us commands through his word, it is to show us the best life possible when we obey him. It's not to be that ogre with the stick or that dictatorial uh, monarch that tries to just make us conform into being robots. He is not that style. He brings his commands so that they will guide us into the best life possible. When we read, Thou shalt, it leads us into this abundant life of forgiveness and mercy and peace and freedom. When we read the thou shalt nots, he's not trying to rob us of anything, but he wants to lead us into something that will bring us joy, the fullness of joy, rather than what we might think will bring joy. We try to sink our joys into things, into the latest fad, into that which the media or the advertising gurus or the marketing guys say this will make your life whole. God wants to bring us into his wholeness which is eternal. The TV only lasts a few years. Now when we look at James, and this is all a precluder and and, uh, I'm not that far away, Everybody thought, since you got a short notice, you'll only be quick. And I said, I can pad it up. (laughs) When we read the book of James, you know who wrote it, don't you? I can hear a few people say, is it it a trick question? (laughs) No, James wrote it. Of course, James wrote it. James was the half brother of Jesus and early in in his days you wouldn't imagine growing up with your half-brother and he's claiming to be God yeah right James didn't think that Jesus was the son of God and we can prove that through the gospels but uh, without having to go back there he was pretty convinced that he was God and the son of God after the resurrection well Here he is back again from the dead. He saw him die. He saw him buried. And now he's back from the dead. And so then James put his faith fully in Jesus. And how do we know that? Because in the precluder or the the first verse, it says, James, a servant of God. He wasn't just a Jew in serving God, but he was also a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much was he committed to Jesus that he was martyred. He was martyred by being thrown off the roof of a building. 
and he hadn't died and the church tradition says that someone came with a stick and bashed in his skull so that he would be dead. And he did it because he would never deny the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Soon after that, it was soon after this book was written that he died. He was martyred. He writes in light of knowing the persecution of Christians. He's a contemporary of Paul who once was a persecutor of Christians that, but then became saved and then went through persecution for being a follower of Christ. We read in that first verse that he, he writes to the 12 tribes in dispersion, those ones that were spread abroad, those ones that were scattered because they had suffered persecution. Those ones who had believed in Christ and therefore because of their belief they became persecuted and they dispersed. He also had in his mind uh, the memory of the stoning of Jesus, oh no, the stoning of Stephen. He was remembering the crucifixion and the torture of Christ. He was remembering his resurrection. He was remembering the stoning of Stephen. He saw contemporarily, contemporaneously all of those people who were being persecuted. And so he comes with this view in his mind. It wasn't that he was just in a place of total comfort that he could say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you enjoy your various sorts of trials. And imagine what it would be like for them as Christians in those times. Imagine what it would be like for a group of Christians in North Korea right now. That if they are discovered to be Christians or they have a Bible or a portion of the Bible in their possession, they are sent to death camp. And so the Christians in North Korea, it is proven, through uh, ministries like Open Doors, that they pray from Sunday or Monday through to Sunday and they say, God, where is it that you want us to meet today? Because if they make a meeting with others, someone might crack under torture and then everybody's found. And so the Holy Spirit speaks to each one of them individually and says, go over there and meet there. So they go there on Sunday morning and then another one comes and then another one comes and then another one comes and they secretly have a time of worship together and uh, opening what they know of the Bible and if someone's got one that's um, kept secret. Imagine what it would be like in this first century Christianity that these guys would come together in a home, not in a place like this, not sitting in rows facing the front, and whoever told us we had to do that anyway, but, but they would come together, they would worship together, they would eat a meal together, they would sing together. And here in this context, they take the, book, the letter of James. They don't read the first few verses and then do a 50-minute exposition. <laughs> they just read the letter and if I took time to read the letter it'd take us about 15 minutes and I'm not allowed to do that so, um, so they would just take the letter and read it because it was a letter contemporaneous letter from James to them and he's saying Trials and suffering and difficulty can be expected in our lives, folks. And they say, yeah, we know. We're having it. It's happening to us today. 
It happened to us yesterday. It will probably happen to us tomorrow. We expect it. Just like those North Koreans who are dedicated to Christ in the middle of their persecution. And don't think we won't come to persecution because I believe there's persecution coming even subtly into the Western nations. So much so that Simon Rattray, who most of you know, has finished with Open Doors and now he's developing training courses for Western churches on how to deal with persecution when it comes. And he's the only one we know who's doing it. Isn't that amazing? Trials and suffering and difficulty can be expected in our lives, but I want to say that God does not drive an ambulance. He doesn't arrive after the fact. Jesus isn't the ambulance driver that arrives after an unexpected accident and comes and, ha and tries to put things back together. God never shows up late. What we do with that truth what do we do with that truth in the light of our suffering? That God knows. He knows the hairs on our head. He stands outside the universe. He transcends the universe and knows everything about me. That he's not the ambulance driver showing up late. I must point out to you firstly and point to you to one thing. And that is the cross of Christ. That Jesus didn't show up late, but at the right time he died for us. That he gave his life for us. There's no greater evidence that God is for you, not against you. It's in the cross of Christ. Christ has come and he has died and he has rescued our soul from sin and death. God is for us. He's not against us. We have not been abandoned. And even when we go through the struggles and the hardships and the sufferings and the trials, we are not abandoned because God has already paid the price at the cross. Must be the Larry shirt. Bob bought me a new shirt yesterday. It must be feeling I'm feeling Larry. We all want the comforts. We all want the nice things. But James says that's what not what life's about. Our Western society tells us that we must have the comforts to survive. We must have the right car, we must have the right house, we must have the right TV. But James says, no, that's not what life's all about. Life is about progressing in our lives with God, not perfection, not the comfort, not the easy things. The world wants to pull us towards the lure of comfort and of ease, but the Bible says that that's a lie. As a father, when my boys were growing up, we didn't just let them do exactly what they wanted to do all of the time. Even though I know Josh often wanted to do what he wanted to do all of the time, and I was like that when I grew up. We certainly weren't and aren't perfect parents. Barb and I would tell you that. But sometimes we would just have to correct the boys, wouldn't we? We'd just to say, don't do that, that's dangerous. Don't go that way, you'll get injured. Don't do this, don't do that. Do this is a better thing to do. Not just let them do everything that brought them ease and comfort because they had to learn lessons. 
I wouldn't let the boys take their matchbox cars and, and play with them in the middle of the road. Why? I don't know. Isn't it obvious? And in doing that, what we're trying to do as parents is to try and lead them to a life that's the most joy-filled as possible. Because we know that there are things that are dangerous, we know there are things that are unhealthy, we know there are things that won't bring us joy. If Barb and I, as parents, gave our boys all of the answers by rescuing them from all of the difficulties, they wouldn't learn how to do life and they would never appreciate the great things in life when they came. For the hard things in life help us to appreciate the good things. And when we go through suffering, God as our Heavenly Father is helping us to appreciate all the blessings that he has for us through that suffering that we go through. God wants to remind us that even though it's hard and we don't want it to be hard, he as our loving Father is leading us through suffering to steadfastness, as it says in some versions, or endurance, as it says in other versions, or perseverance, as we read in the New International Version this morning. He wants to show us how to progress by showing us more of his love, more of his glory, more of his light, more of his truth, so that it brings us to completion or maturity. It brings us to become uh, more Christ-like, to develop in our Christian character so that we're fully prepared uh, to stand before God perfect and complete or mature and complete. Jesus comes alongside of us in the midst of our joy, uh, midst of our suffering. He comes, he strives with us, he shares our burden with us, he is there. In bringing us through the trials of life, we grow in endurance. We grow in resilience. He brings us to that place where we know that our only hope is in him because he is the God who knows all things and is involved in our lives to journey with us. We will all face suffering and trials. That's the good news. That's the hard news. But the good news is that Jesus never leaves us alone. For he has already gone before us. He will bring us through for our good and for his glory. We all face seasons of suffering, believers and unbelievers. Yet none of us will experience the full weight of suffering that Jesus experienced. He experienced suffering so that we could he could ultimately redeem us from ours. Through Christ, suffering can actually become a means to joy what is your response to suffering what has been your response to suffering what is your even anticipation of that there may even be suffering in the future it reveals something of our hearts as to our attitude do we trust in the goodness of god do we trust in the faithfulness of god do we trust that he stands outside of us and knows us even before we're in our mother's wombs and knows the hair, hairs on our heads? Is our faith one that is strong enough to endure the furnace of suffering? If you're suffering, know in, now in this season. 
God is inviting you to trust in his goodness. If you're struggling, God invites you to know and to trust that he has everything in his hand. That he knows where you are. That he knows the pain. That he knows the struggle. If you're not in a season of suffering at the moment, this is the time to develop a robust theology of suffering. Don't be surprised when God calls you to use it. Because sometimes you will. So how do we move through? Two more things. How do we move through when we're done? How do we move through suffering? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When the suffering comes, when the trials come, be thankful not for the trial, but be thankful in the midst of the trial because God is the one who knows you. He is the good God. He is the faithful God. He is the loving God. He is the God who will bring you through. If Jesus didn't know this, he wouldn't walk through 40 days of uh, wilderness and come to the end fully trusting in the Father. Sometimes we will need to go through wildernesses. But trust God. Trust God. Jesus came to his first temptation after the desert and the enemy said to him, turn the stones into bread, Jesus. Manipulate your life and make the hard things soft. He says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The enemy says, trust in yourself. What are you going to do? Trust in yourself or trust in God? Jesus saying, I'm trusting God. Who will you trust in? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you endure or meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, resilience, steadfastness, perseverance. And let perseverance, endurance and steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect, so that you may be mature, that you may be brought into completion, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you because of who you are. We thank you that you are the God who knows us far more than we know ourselves. And we thank you that you walk through suffering with us and trials with us far more than we can ever endure of our own. Help us, Father to know your presence, to know your strength, to know your faithfulness, to know your goodness, and to always be thankful in that, to always rejoice in you, and to always have our hearts and minds set on you. For you, O oh God, are the one who made the heavens and the earth, for the heavens declare the glory of our God. Amen.